the philosophy of psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 29, Telling Stories and Cultural Scaffolding. Okay, so today's lecture, Telling Stories, one of my favourite themes, and um, unfortunately I totally revamped the lecture at one o'clock today, so I'm sorry it wasn't up online before now, and I really am very sorry about that. I thought I'd get it done sooner. Okay, this is the lecture summary. So what we're going to look at is what are stories and how do they operate, and then we're going to look at what contributes to the formation of stories developmentally, the sort of interpersonal scaffolding that you get from other people, basically. Then we're going to look at just one variant of cultural input, but if you're interested in spin and reporting rules in the media, I fully welcome you to take that up as a theme. I think it's something that's extremely interesting. I'm not going to look at it so much this year as I have in other years, uh, but I'll be looking at the way that we get received genres of telling, ways of telling our story that we get from our culture. Then I want to look for the last two points on the notion of audience uptake, and that's a major theme of this lecture because memory and life stories are seen as very private and very personal. But what I want to show you is that they are deeply influenced by social forces and by social factors. So even in our most private sort of accounts of ourselves, we've accidentally been influenced by social forces. And I want to use the example of Joseph Razor's work with Aboriginal cultures in southeast Queensland, really briefly. And then I want to look at uh, the notion that Sue Canberra picks up in her marvellous book, Interpreting the Personal, about being dismissed, because I, I think it's actually quite a powerful way to work. Now, throughout this lecture, I'm not just going to be jumping up and down about things that will be potentially useful for your exams. I've also got a few ideas of things that I think would make really manageable honours projects, and I just want to say that in, in speaking about those ideas, I'm not suggesting that you would have to come and do that research with me. I'm just saying, here's a whole stash of things that I think would be very much a really researchable within a year, what, you know, what you've got ahead of you, basically, as an honours student to get ethics in and all that. So I'll be trying to sort of just drop a few ideas your way um, as we go. Okay. So what are life stories? Well, it's, it's an evolving life story or personal myth. So it's not something that's static. And it's an inner story. So it's not something that's always told. It's a narration of self or sense of self, if you like, that each person continues to author and revise over time. And what it is is it's a way of trying to make sense to yourself of what you've been through. But it's also sometimes a story that you risk telling others. But the story that you tell other people doesn't always equal a life story. So, for instance, I may be very adept at giving a press release. Like if I'm someone who thinks at a later life phase I might go into politics, I might never really tell my life story the way it is. I might tell a, a highly edited, highly pro-social high self-monitoring account of myself that's squeaky clean. So in other words, my inner story doesn't equal the story that I tell. But as you get closer to your audience, that the distance between the inner story and the story that you tell shrinks. 
you, you start to risk what you really feel about things. But it, so it's a psychological construction, but it's a kind of very dynamic inner telling, something that you're working on within yourself, and it's evolving over time. Now, for some people, the first time they encounter their life stories is when they walk into psychotherapy, and they suddenly realize they've got this whole view of themselves, and it might be that they, they're boring or that nobody loves them or that... Um, for some reason, life just has not gone their way, you know, and they don't really realize they've ever had this story until there's that particular kind of audience there. The thing that I think is most interesting about life stories is that they have powerful unconscious influences, and we're going to be looking at some of those today. And we often don't realize that my story is not my story, that it actually has a lot of input from my family and from my culture, whatever that might be if you've lived in a few. And so often people don't realize that there is actually another story that they could tell about themselves. And when I first started reading this area, because I was a bit hard-nosed, to be honest, you know, I sort of was all, it was all at the level of the body and drives and affects and motivation for me, you know, and that social level of, of the, you know, social constructions like stories and narratives, I thought, yeah, but what kind of causal input are they going to have into your personality? I was so sceptical until I discovered that people actually seem to have stories about themselves that seem to me quite wide of the truth, like they didn't seem to be accurate. This person might be saying, yeah, I'm not very confident, I'm not really independent, you know, I, I struggle to meet people, and I'm kind of like gobsmacked because it seems completely opposite to how they present to me. And then what you realise is that this person is stuck with an out-of-date story. They haven't hit the reload button on their computer. They're working with an old cached copy of who they are. But that's actually having effect. They're not applying for jobs that are at their true level because they've got an outdated notion of their own capacity. They won't walk up to a cute guy or girl at a nightclub because they still think they're not attractive because they experience themselves as not attractive in the Australian sense at age eight or something. And you're going, mm, that's a dangerous attitude given what you look like now, okay? They haven't worked out that they've changed. And so when I discovered narrative therapy, because there was a woman, Daphne Hewson, that used to teach on staff here, and she used to teach it as a master sort of unit that's still taught. I think Janet Conti teaches it now, one of Daphne's students. When you realise the power of changing the narrative and the way that that has knock-on effects downstream by downstream, I mean people start to feel different. They start to have different behaviours. They have different aspirations. They even have different cognitions and perceptions. Now, I wouldn't have thought that would change as a result of changing the narrative. I thought, oh, you've got to change the emotions and the cognitions, and then the narrative will change. I'd never realised that you could enter in and change things at the level of the narrative. And all these other things downstream, as it were, like emotions and motivations, would change. So... I very much saw things in a different light once I worked that out. And that's what I really want to convey to you today, is that two-way process between the sort of hardcore embodied features of personality and the more social features of narrative. Okay. So life stories are ordered and also not just structured, they're also interpreted by you and by others. You'd be very bored if someone just gave you the biographical facts. Life stories go far beyond those basic elements. They're psychosocial constructions, and you're not the only author of your life story. They're very much 
co-authored, and you, you've authored them in a particular cultural context. Now, if you look at, like, at Dan McAdams' notion of identity, he thinks it's got unity, it's got a goal, it's got purpose, and strive. You know what I mean? That's a very Western construction of identity. In other words, even his theory is very influenced by the cultural context in which that theory was developed. There would be other cultural contexts where that would not be the way that a life story was told. It wouldn't centre on a single individual, perhaps. It might, you know, take a, a broader grouping as the as the focus. But, you know, we are psychosocial constructions ourselves. We are really shaped by the cu cultural rules about how we tell the stories of ourselves and how we give meaning to what we've been through. And there's a lot of cultural input into that. I remember going to a screenwriting <coughs> workshop once, and this guy was a very successful filmmaker, and he was basically saying, whatever you do, don't mix the genres. Like, you don't want sci-fi and comedy. You don't want sci-fi and action and romance. And I was thinking of all the films I love are genre-breaking films, you know, but, but he was definitely saying, no, that for a box office success, you've got to, you know, stick with the genres. I'm not sure that's true. If you think about something like Inception, which is kind of high theory, sci-fi, sort of a famous romance, I suppose, but, you know, yeah. Okay, but in our stories, it's usually trouble that drives the drama. So if I were to ask you now to say, just start to tell me about yourself right now. And you can choose any point of origin. You don't have to start from... Well, I came into the world with curly black hair and I screamed a lot. You know, it doesn't have to be that biographical right back at the start. You might choose something like, well, I was really conflicted last week and that conflict is something that I've felt so many times in my life. Do you know? Okay, so in other words, where you would even start your story would tell me quite a lot because I imagine you'd go to something that was a bit juicy, you know, that had a bit of, bit of conflict you know, one thing was pushing one way and something else was pushing the other way. And usually with stories, that's the case. Trouble drives the drama. In fact, one of my best friend's boyfriends accidentally reveals that he had read her diary when he said, she has no sense of narrative tension. <laughs> and she turned to him and said, how would you know? <laughs> and I thought, whoops. <laughs> it was very cute. I thought her diaries were great. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> okay. So our identity, as I'm sure you know, is culturally and socially shaped. It's easy to say that, though. It's very different to really know what that means, that things are culturally and socially shaped. Because one of the things that um, one of my honour students two years ago did was we coded some of the memories that students offered to us as part of the project just in terms of concepts and language categories that we felt were part of any narrative in Australian culture. In other words, they're kind of like script-level, you know, templates of what, how you tell a story. So it's kind of like, if it were a single day, it would be, you know, have breakfast, had lunch, had dinner, yeah? If it's your life, it's kind of like um, fell in love, fell out of love, got married, had babies, you know, bought a house, went around the world, got it all. You know, that, in other words, there's sort of scripted narrative points that you're supposed to chime when you're telling a story. And our culture offers us those stories, those kind of almost mythic structures. It might be redemption. You know, I was addicted to heroin and now I'm not. Or it might be I was amazingly organised as a teenager and now I'm incredibly scruffy and going in the other direction rather than redemption. 
Now, the major thing I want to convey today is that whether other people are prepared to allow us to tell our stories in the way that we want to tell them, that has enormous impact on the significance that we place on our own past and the meaning that we place on events of the past. So in other words, I'm saying that how well people listen to us influences how our meanings form. So how well people listen to us influences how our meanings form. And I'll give you lots and lots of examples of that. I know that sounds slightly abstract now, but I think it's quite important. It's not like I've got this life story and it's in my head and I tell it in the same way no matter to whom I'm speaking. What, what you've got in your head is a set of biographical facts, a few autobiographical memories of varying degrees of specificity. But the story you tell and which bits get elaborated and where you put the significance and the emphasis and what emotions form in the process of telling is critically determined by what kind of audience you've got and what kind of audience uptake they're capable of. So when I called this lecture the, the power of the audience or audience power, you have a lot of power as a listener. If I suddenly look away or look at my watch or check my mobile phone, it's a huge signal to you about the story that you're telling. So in other words, life stories are dependent on listeners. The inner story is dependent on the outer reception that it gets. And that's the, the pivotal point. So stories have got two levels. There's the landscape of action, that's the facts, factual details, and they're the sorts of things that could be confirmed by someone else who was also present at the event. So you were fleeing Afghanistan. At what point were you on the border? On what day? Was it night or was it morning? How many guards were on the border? Those are the factual details. Okay. But what was the significance of that? You had one night to gather together whatever possessions you could, travel without papers, with your three children, and you hit that border. Now, what you tell about the significance of that might vary depending on whether you're talking to a border guard, um, some sort of security person when you arrive in your new uh, country, or you know whether or not you were talking to people that traveled with you in the struggle of all of that. So in other words, there's the landscape of action, but there's also the landscape of meaning. And those are the more interpretive details. So when I said your life story is not just told, it's interpreted. That's what I mean. That the elements of your subjective experience that are left out of the story will find their way in to the story are very powerfully shaped by the quality of your listening. And I, I had to review a couple of articles for some researchers in Britain who were looking at the kind of model of memory that immigration officials use and the kinds of deviations and tellings that they see as significant. So in other words, people can actually be denied entry to a new country too many details vary. And yet if you think about how many things could vary at the level of significance, and it would still be the same story because it's a dynamic story. If you imagine that you've been traumatized at the moment and you only work out certain things later, okay, but that's suddenly seen as inconsistency. So, so getting the right model of memory 
matters. And I don't just mean in academia. I mean for immigration officials, for them to know how much variability is normal in a memory, how much variability at the landscape of actions or the landscape of meaning is normal, depending on what the people have been through. So to understand what trauma might do to a memory or what depression might do to a memory. And that's what I'm hoping you'll get out of today's lecture. Okay. So even if the audience doesn't contest what happened, they may not agree with the significance that you place on the event. So you might say, I, I fled to the border of, of Afghanistan. I was fleeing for my life. Right. They might, might say, yes, you got to the border. We disagree that your life was actually in danger. We don't see you as a refugee. We see you as a fugitive. Okay. Right. And that's the sort of thing that you'd be facing. Now, the structure of stories, they've got all sorts of different structural properties. And I know it sounds quite dusty and dry, but they can actually be quite relevant with certain forms of memory research. Um, it's quite fascinating, for me anyway, when people start to tell their stories, where they start it. I always love to notice the first thing a person tells me about their life. Where do they begin? And then what sort of narrative structure have they got? Do they leap around in time? Or do they go, failure, let me tell you. Okay, I failed an exam last year, and this has been one of a long line of failures in my life. I'm going, okay, we're going thematic here. <laughs> Negative affect, thema, failure, achievement's an issue, right? They've told me a lot already, right? Okay, some people will go goal action sequences, what they aim for. Well, I aimed for that job, and I got it. I went for that degree, and I got it, right? Okay, success, high achievement, right? But you've also got different patterns of rising and falling action, and all of this is, is material that you can analyze and code for if you're interested. There are different forms of coherence as well. The thematic one I just told you about, number four, is you know where you choose something like failure or success or old flames I still have a passion for. You know what I mean? Those kinds of themes that people might take as their, as their life story. There's the obvious one of time that I'm going to talk to you about more this week because it's a good one. And then there's the biographical one. I don't know about you, but if you ask someone their life story and they start with the baby goo-goos and gagas and what month they got their first tooth, I'm going, oh dear. <laughs> Pass me a champagne. It's going to be a long night. <laughs> okay. It's like, oh, I was hoping for a little more swiftness in the story. Ever heard that trouble drives the drama really well? No, don't worry. Okay. Right. And then there's causal. This is something that, that one of my master's students, actually a whole bunch of master's students that I worked with a few years ago, um, were interested in um, people who were addicted to heroin living on the street in King's Cross. And we just asked the story of them. How did you get here? Like how did, what got you here? And they told a retrospective causal account of their journey. And that's a really fabulous way to work with people. Oh, and Habermas is, is a real name to watch. If you're interested in life stories, narratives, coding structures, he is so meticulous. Um, Jürgen Habermas, he's very cool. Okay, so what do stories do for you? What do we use them for? Well, I love Dan Dinner. He's a philosopher. Um, he says, our fundamental tactic of self-protection, self-control, and self-definition is not spinning webs or building dams like 
like spiders, beavers, but telling stories, and more particularly, concocting and controlling the stories that we tell others and ourselves about who we are. So you think about it, self-control. Someone says, would you give me a ride? You go, no, I've had two glasses of wine. I can't drive when I've had wine, right? That's a story you've told yourself about what kind of driver you are, and it functions. So people just learn to accept that, that that's not a person that will ever drive you if they've been drinking, okay? And self-definition, sometimes we, we cling to them so that we feel that we know who we are. Sometimes we protect ourselves with the stories that we tell, and that's the sort of press release function. And sometimes when you're a researcher, you can tell that you're getting a press release because there aren't any... Um, conflicting details in the story or there's no sign of trouble driving the drama because trouble is usually in any story. If there's no trouble I would have a look again at, at how much that person trusts you or how much rapport you've managed to establish. Dan McAdams he says look, your whole identity hinges on your having a storied sense of self and you've got to integrate it. You've got to integrate it in two ways. I've got to integrate it synchronically that is I'm not just Doris the lecturer, I'm also a mum, and someone who throws pots, and I'm someone who cycles, you know what I mean? There's all sorts of different roles that are part of you, and you've got to sort of link those together in various ways. That's synchronic integration. People who are dissociated or traumatised often lose that. They're different people in different settings. High self-martyrs who really know how to pitch it to a particular audience. They can lose that integration as well. They can be really wild at a party and then look like butter wouldn't melt in their mouth when they're going for a job interview. Okay, you know. So in other words, they don't have a coherent story synchronously. They strategically cut the connections or they unconsciously have those connections cut as a way of surviving what they've been through. Another way that we organise our stories is diachronically, through time. So I try to link up with who I was as a child to who I am now and who I aspire to be in the future. Now, for Dan McAdams, that's what makes an identity. It's got to have unity and purpose. And I sort of think that's too much. I think unity's a lot to ask, because I don't know about you. I've, I feel as if I've had quite dis different and disparate aspirations at different times in my life. And I feel like there's, I'm more like a braided river, I think, you know, with lots and lots of different currents rather than a single river. I feel like there's all sorts of parts of me. And just when you think that part's, well, that's not part of me anymore, it suddenly comes back to life in an interesting way. I'll give you a personal example. I was cleaning out my back porch and I was just about to throw out my potter's wheel. And I was looking at it as I was thinking of perfing it out on rubbish day and thought, I should buy some more clay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, boom, back into it straight away. And I was just about to let it go. So I think that unity feels like a big ask. What do you feel? Do you, do you feel that you've got lots of strands to who you are? Or Yeah, exactly. Whereas I think sometimes being high in impression management makes things run quite smoothly in life. You know, you don't necessarily have to be, you know, aggressively authentic, you know, no matter where you are. Yeah. But I also think having different strands of aspiration is important. Like, I think I gave you that example. You know, what do you do when you're procrastinating? What is it you're doing when you call it procrastinating? Because that might be something that's very important to you, but you just haven't really looked at it and included it in your life story. You just kind of dismiss it 
as a piece of procrastination, but it might be something that's really fascinating for you. Okay, so where do life stories fit? This is kind of the top level of abstraction in this diagram is cultural context. Underneath that is your identity. Underneath that again is your life stories and narratives. Underneath that again is your autobiographical memory. And underneath that is a big mouthful, basically transitory mental constructions within the self-memory system. Okay, all that means is the way I am remembering things now. Okay, so if I'm in a really bad mood, life's bad, it's always been bad, it's always going to be bad, right? That's a transitory mental construction. And fortunately, if I'm lucky, that will pass until I'm in a good mood and then everything's looking hunky-dory and fabulous. Okay, so you can have these little dynamic, transient constellations of memories, emotions, and a sense of self. But they can be fleeting, like you know the bubbles that you blow at kids' parties. And sometimes they're fleeting and that's good, because if you're in a really bad mood and it goes, that's a really great thing, right? But if you're in a really bad mood and it stays for a while, that's not so great. So sometimes the transitoriness is something you really actively seek and wish for. So within the self-memory system, I hope this is looking familiar to you from Celia's lecture. The most abstract level is your life period. So you'd be third-year students, roughly. General category, sitting at lecture. Event-specific knowledge, being in this lecture now. What are the seats like? How hot are we? Do you feel like running out and grabbing a coffee? Right? That much more moment-to-moment -moment phenomenological what it's like to be here right now, which is called ESC, event-specific knowledge. Quite important for reasons I'll tell you about in a little minute. So the, here's just a little metaphor for you because I want to show you a picture that I think helps. So you've got the life period, your third-year students. You've got the general category, attending lectures. You've got the event-specific knowledge. Now what that is, is sensory, specific. I often call it textured. When I say textured, that's what I mean. I mean sensory, specific, phenomenological. Usually it's got a bit of emotion in it as well. Okay, so it's knowledge that's linked to and evoking feelings. And that's what I take you need to have what I call a full autobiographical memory. If you stop short, if you just give, if I sort of say, you know, tell me about yourself. I'm a third year student. Okay. That's factual knowledge, but I don't feel I know you. I'm a third-year student who attends lectures. Okay, still don't feel I know you all that well. And you say, I'm a, I'm a third-year student who attends lectures, and right now I've got the worst cramp in my foot, and I always get foot cramps or something like that. I'm starting to really know you, okay, because there's something that's fleshing that out. Okay, so if you think of it, the, those stones that are growing across the river, they're like the sort of general categories, right? So if I were asking you to tell me your life story, and as a general category you took failure, right? What happens is that that categorical level, that, that level of the stones, primes the next category. So if you start off thinking of failure, it will link and prime more failures. Okay? If you start off thinking of successes, it will link and prime more successes. Okay? But it's just, can you see it's at an abstract level? It's just failures I have had or successes I have had. Okay. 
Now I'm going to back up a bit and then come back to that. So when we access the past, we view that past through the filter of our own emotional state at the time of remembering. And that emotional state samples or shapes what we sample of the world in all sorts of ways. It doesn't just sample what we remember about the external world. It shapes what we sample and are open to about our inner world as well. And it actually also influences the kinds of connections that we make between events. So, for instance, if I'm in an anxious state, I will be hypervigilant to the external world for sources of threat. And I will be looking for similarities. I'll be looking for sources of threat that I have reliably picked up in the past. So it makes me, anxiety makes me focus to the external world. It makes me look for similarities. And it makes me link those similarities together. If I'm in um, a joyous state, it also makes me orient towards the external world. But it makes me search the world for novelty. And I'm quite flaky in that I don't make very tight connections at all. Oh, that's fun. Oh, that's fun. Oh, that's fun too, right? So the connections are far looser connections. So in other words, positive affect, as Eisen and Fredrickson and all sorts of people, if you're interested, I can fire you articles, they suggest that positive affects make you rangier and you scan the world in a different way. And so in, in a sense, you often don't realise that what's shaping what you remember is the state you're in or that the conclusions that you're drawing are reflecting the state you're in rather than the world itself. And so a lot of therapy works to make you realize that, that you're contributing something to the way that you're viewing the world. In other words, emotions can taint or color how you perceive, how you remember, and how you reflect. Now, if we really want to learn from past experience, we can't just focus on what we know of the world. So it's not just semantic memory, right, which is facts I know about the world. We also need to know what aspects of us might have contributed to that sampling of the world. So if I say, oh, you know, um, I was a bit of a depressive kid, and one of the reasons was, you know, I had sort of recently come from Scotland and I couldn't work out, you know, how to live in this whole new cultural context. And so even though I thought school was awful, school probably wasn't really that bad. It was just the state I was in at that moment in my life. You see what I mean? How it gives you another angle on the past. Now, you see, as soon as you can sort of say, it wasn't just the way school was, it was something I brought, that frees things up and opens up the possibility that you might recollect school as actually having done you a lot of favours because it made certain other things possible later. In other words, you don't just remember everything was black when I was young or everything was fabulous when I was young. Okay, so that's, that's quite a crucial thing, to know that bits of yourself are in there, in the autobiographical memory, in a way that they're not in the semantic memory. If I ask you about the flags of the world, you know, you can tell me those factual details. But if you say I was eight when I learned all the flags of the world because it used to impress my auntie, you're into autobiographical memory. Okay, so I hope you've got the difference between those two. Okay. Now, one of the things about the way that emotion influences remembering is that 
It all depends on how well you can handle your emotion, the effect that it has on your remembering. And there are two broad styles of remembering that I'm completely obsessed with and still doing research on to this day, which is rumination and reflections. Highly measurable. Um, Campbell and Trapman's scales are little beauties. They, they've never let me down in my research. They're short. They're psychometrically valid and reliable, so I would recommend them to you. There are others around as well, um, but there's a, a great scale. Okay. So let's just go back to Lambie and Marcel's model of emotion, which I know I've um, been talking a fair bit about in the course. Just to, rem to remind you, the first thing that happens at the level of emotion for them is you've got this somatosensory stimulation. That's the kind of what I've called the bodily clout of emotion. And then you've got how you attend to that. So what I want to sort of say is, if I can attend to that in a reflective way, right, the bodily clout doesn't overwhelm me. If I go, gosh, I'm a bit anxious today because I haven't been lecturing for a while, and you know, it always takes a bit to sort of get back up in front of the crowd again when you've had some time off, right? I'm reflectively aware of my bodily state. And so the fact that my heart might be racing a little bit more doesn't worry me because I can understand it. I can appraise its meaning as something that's routine. But if I didn't do that, and I thought, oh, gosh, my heart's racing. Oh, perhaps I'm having a panic attack. Perhaps I'm going to die, right? Not such a great way of attending to the bodily clout. Of, you know, but it could be the same sensory, somatosensory stimulation. And all of this is what shapes how something becomes conscious mental experience for you. Now, the reason that I'm interested in Lambie and Marcel's model is because it means if you really want to change the way that someone experiences emotion, there's all sorts of different points of entry. You can go in as to how they attend. You can go into how they appraise the meaning of it. And what I was doing with a couple of people was looking at the way that the manner of attending shaped how people recollected the recent past. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about. Now, the reason that this whole area of research actually even came on to the agenda was because uh, people who had gone through wars and trauma or who had had suboptimal parenting or who had borderline tendencies um, would sometimes try to avoid emotions altogether in the belief that if they avoid them, they will, those emotions will have no cause and effect. Unfortunately, avoidance looks like a bad strategy, whichever way you look at it. I've never seen any research that suggests avoiding emotion is a great idea. Postponing looking at emotions in the short term to get yourself through, no sweat. But avoiding it in the longer term usually backfires in the literatures that I read, in the forms of post-traumatic stress disorder with intrusive images. And also, you're starting to become afraid of your own emotions. It's like, I can't go there. I can't get anxious or I can't get angry because my emotions are just completely uncontrollable. And in a sense, that's what that's the sort of picture I get of rumination when I read the very different and many researchers who do research into it. Part and parcel of rumination seems to be that one's feelings seem threatening and confusing and inescapable. They won't stop, they won't turn off. But strangely enough, what happens is that people often rather than focusing on the world when they're ruminating, they actually start to focus inwards and quite repetitively 
on the causes and consequences of their distress. The problem is it's not a sensory focus. It's like they've jumped up onto those stepping stones and they're thinking, why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me again? This always happens to me, right? And they're skipping across those stepping stones, but they're not actually contextualizing what they're feeling. They're not actually letting it become ESK, event-specific knowledge. And this can actually become the sort of neurotic dwelling on and the neurotic rumination of dysphoria and self-focus, which I'm sure we all know. Like, we all ruminate at times, but some of us are real ruminators, you know, most of the time. And and it's quite a tough um, emotional style to have. You want to learn how to break out of it if you've got it. And the way to break out of it is uh, reflection. And that's the, the another option. And that's where you actually have the sense that your feelings are clear and controllable. They might be horrible. It might be, I'm absolutely in agony. I'm completely miserable that my lover just left me. But, you know, at least I know my state and I can, I can bear it. And it might be even like, gosh, I'm in even more agony about losing this person than I was losing the other person. Have anybody seen High Fidelity, the movie? Oh, it's really great. Opening scene. This is not a spoiler. Opening scene is three worst breakups, and this woman's walking out the door and goes, and you don't even get in the top three, he yells to her. It's a really great sort of line. So he's got this notion that, yeah, I can, I can know that I'm in a bad state, and I can even work out just how bad my state is. And with reflection, there's still an, a capacity to have that ESK, that event-specific knowledge to know what your body and your world feels. So that's very sweet of you. I, I truly thank you. So we're resuming. Okay, so when you've got that reflective awareness, yes, the, the negative feelings are still negative, but you're still able to be aware of body and world. It's not like you get up onto those um, stepping stones and go at a sort of general categorical level. It's still got full event-specific knowledge. In other words, you're open to the more textual autobiographical aspects of the experience. And this is what we call epistemic curiosity. So in other words, epistemic means um, how do I know what I know? So like an inquiry into how you know. How do I know that I'm anxious? Well, my hands are shaking, my heart's racing, etc. But you're open to the evidence. You're not trying to avoid the feelings. So short story, the manner of attending influences how emotion affects both memory and perception. And that's going to be a crucial detail. The problem is, we avoid the sensory and the specific. If emotions overwhelm us, we often try to avoid triggering them. You think about it. If I've never been taught by my parents how to self-soothe, what point is there for me to know that I'm sad? Because I don't know what to do once I know I'm sad. I just feel really miserable. And so if I haven't been taught how to soothe, I'm going to avoid, basically. And if I avoid the sensory specific, I'm going to miss vital details for full autobiographical memory. In other words, I'm going to stay on those stepping stones. And I'm just going to take the stepping stones across the stream of my feelings. And this is exactly what depressed people and ruminators do. They've learned not to get their feet wet. They've learned to avoid event-specific knowledge. And that staying at the general level is negatively reinforced. And I mean that in the original behavioristic sense. 
Negative reinforcement is the removal of something aversive. So I don't get my feet wet, but at least I don't access emotions that I don't know what to do with. So that's a rewarding thing. To stay away from sensory specific knowledge is rewarding for me. But it has its costs. It has huge costs. Because it accidentally perpetuates the depression and the rumination. So it's a vicious cycle. Because what happens is that we tend to get captured. If we're trying to avoid the event-specific knowledge, we stay on the stepping stones. But hey, the stepping stones category happens to be failures I have endured. And I stay at that level. That's not going to repair my mood fast, is it? Life is going to look like it's always been bleak. And when I look into the future, it's going to look bleak at exactly that level. Now, what fascinates me about this, I couldn't believe this research when I found it. I really didn't believe it. And so that was what honestly motivated me to try and replicate it. And I managed to replicate it with Andrew Jeeves and Alan Taylor. And I didn't expect to get positive results, but we really did. So it's quite interesting. So Williams and Broadbent, they were um, just doing sort of routine interviews of people who had recently attempted suicide and hadn't completed suicide. And they were just doing sort of like mini mental state sort of examination. They were giving them cue words and getting them to give a, a memory. And they noticed that none of the memories had any ESK. None of them had any event-specific knowledge. They were all just general. So summer, walking on the beach. Um, birthdays, cakes. Okay, so just at the level of that sort of culturally scripted knowledge, nothing about themselves. And so they thought, wow, this is, this is amazing. So Williams and Broadbent did the initial research with the people who had recently committed suicide, and I think Williams and Drichtel followed it up with people that were like really clinically depressed. But then I, had a res uh, I did some research and have found that that overgeneral memory phenomenon is robust even at the level of subclinical depression. So even if you're not medicated, it's not a personality disorder level of... Um, depression, it nonetheless weakens the grip that you've got on the textural features of your autobiographical memory. And interestingly, it doesn't generalize to anxiety disorders, so social phobia, blood, spider phobia, or hydra anxiety. Okay, so that, that just fascinated me. Um, to my knowledge, I don't know if this is true anymore, actually. When I did this research two years ago, I don't think anybody had done research with borderline people. And I think that that, I think there's been one study since, but that would be a fantastic um, piece of research that you would be able to do just to look at people at the more borderline level who have difficulties managing emotion. Do they stay away from emotions and therefore stay away from, you know, ESK in their memories as well? That would be very good. How are we going for time? Five more minutes, then you get your coffee. But what interested me is that it's not even just a marker of depression. It's not like, oh, if you've got depression, this correlates with depression. It actually seems to be causally involved in producing depression. So you want to know about that. Because if you can stop that, you can actually turn people around from depression. Depression is very difficult to work with clinically, I can, I can admit. It's incredibly hard to work with because it can be so self-reinforcing. 
Um, so what's going on? Like, what, why, why this overgeneral memory phenomenon? Well, no one really knows what process causes overgeneral memory phenomenon. It could be that you start to search your past for memories of the beach, and you remember, oh, yes, it was my wonderful lover who's just thumped me that I was on the beach with. No, don't want to think about that. So you truncate the autobiographical memory search. Or it could be that you start to think about failure and you get captured at that level, the stimulus capture and elimination level. Or it could be that your frontal lobes aren't so great anyway when you're depressed, which is quite the, seems to be the case. Um, and so it's more like any train of thought once it's going, it's hard for you to disrupt it and change it and reorient it. We don't really know which of the, those three. And there are many other candidate processes. So here was our, our sort of theory as we were doing the research. What you do when you're doing this research is you use something called the autobiographical memory test. And there's specific cues that you present to a person and you get them to give you memories. So it's a top-down process. So I might say to you, baby, or accident, okay, and you've got to generate a memory. So that, that costs you, that's effortful, it, it requires executive control, and that's precisely what's lacking with depression. So the theory is that people lacking in executive control will just give me a general memory when I say baby or accident. Like they, they might say car crash, baby, goo goo. People do say things like this. I love coding this. They're great. The things that people offer are quite wild sometimes. Sometimes they're incredibly detailed. You know, baby, I remember my grandmother holding my baby sister. So most studies only use a very standard list, and that's only got positive and negative cues, and it doesn't vary on any other attribute. But what we wanted to do was we wanted to vary it not just in terms of positive and negative attributes, but how visualizable uh, the stimulus was as well. And what we found basically was that uh, depressed people were more likely to be able to remember sensory-specific information highly visualizable cues. So in other words, getting people back in touch with the sensory world and cueing them to get back in touch with the sensory world seems to derail slightly that over-general memory phenomenon. And we got fairly significant results with quite a small sample, so we were pretty happy. So that's, this is just the line of thought. It's cognitively costly, it's a top-down test, Depressed people are low on executive functioning. Therefore, those people with a history of depression should provide more general memory. And that was what we found, that self-reported history of depression was linked to overgeneral memory. And it was significant. And we only had... So our self-reported depression scale was a bit fast and loose. We just asked four items, and we sum-totaled those, but they hung together okay. 0.74 was okay for Cronbach's alpha. Interestingly, though, using the DAS, which is a much more reputable scale of depression, anxiety, and stress, and we didn't get significant findings. So our own little, you know, thrown-together scale, um, which was experienced near, have you ever been significantly depressed for, you know, greater than two months? Have you ever been so depressed that you've sought help from a health professional? Those are the kinds of questions we used, and we got really interesting results. So... The, the sad thing is that depressed people have, have more difficulty particularly producing specific memories in response to positive cues. It's like they're in such a negative schematic set that 
that they can't remember their lived and positive experience. Okay. That was Lecture 29 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie Peterson. The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.